Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and you regular listeners know what is coming up today. This week, this week's Coopcast is all about how we as coaches practically implement heat interventions for our athletes. We know that a lot of you out there are training for hot weather races, such as Western States, Wasatch, Badwater, or in my case, the Coca Dona 250. And last week's re-release with Julian Perriard was intended to be a little bit of a scientific primer for this week's episode. This week, what I wanted to do is to take the listeners how we actually do this as coaches with our athletes. And I thought no better to bring on the podcast than one of our fellow coaches, Andy Jones Wilkins, otherwise known as AJW, who has a good stable of athletes that are training for hot weather races, including Western states. And we want to run through the whole gamut of how we actually do with this with athletes from filtering down what athletes are good candidates for this, to what to do when things go awry or or when things are imperfect, which they inevitably are during the training process. I hope all of you listeners take this episode to heart because I know many of you who are training for hot weather races want to know how to practically do this for yourselves. I think that heat acclimation training is one of the best low cost, low effort, highest rate of return interventions that you can use for a hot weather race. And I hope you seriously consider it for any races that you have coming up this summer. So with that as a preamble, I'm going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with coach AJW on how to implement heat training interventions for yourself or for your athletes. So I, I, I used a sauna this morning. Um, the, Do you have one in your house? No. I, you know no, what? Okay. This last experience has be, has made me started to look at it again. Because they're not all that expensive. Like a proper finished sauna, you know, that you can get. Like you can get like a barrel, you know, type of deal that uh, is relatively easy to construct and install. And it's the convenience factor. Like... I would love just to like walk into it like you do it in all the houses in Europe, right? Every time I get an Airbnb yeah. in Europe, there's it's like a standard part of the part of the construction out there. But uh, no, I don't have one in my house. It's uh, in Rob, fact, Rob, Rob Krar has a sweet one right in his back patio. He got it in Vermont. It's it, it's like that thing. It's a barrel, yeah, and and it actually hooks up the heating element hooks up to like his house heater yeah. heater. So the tube just comes in from the house and Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Really cool. I'm gonna, I I'm gonna look cause I use it. I don't know. I can anticipate using it frequently enough to like, kind of like justify it. In fact, I'd probably use it a little yeah. bit more and it's just the convenience factor. Like, you know, I've yeah, got a, what do you got to do? You got, you go to like the YMCA or something? Or yeah, it's a, it's a, a Vasa, gym, yeah. it's a Vasa fitness, nice gym, you know, yeah. mid, middle or upper, upper, you know, quarter type of, you know, gym to have here. There's two locations in Colorado Springs I have no affiliation with them. I, you know, pay full rack rate for, you know, right. for my dues there. It's a, it, and, I, and I like going there. It's a nice gym, but part of the convenience factor is just the drive back and forth. 
You know, I feel right. like it's like the windshield rule, right? That we use in running. Like you can't spend more time behind, you know, the windshield right. than you do running. <laughs> it's the same thing here. It takes me 30, it takes me 15 minutes to get there and 15 minutes to get back. And I spend 30 minutes in the sauna. So I'm just like yeah. running right at the edge of it. <laughs> right <on> the edge. <laughs> but the second thing is, and I finally just relearned this, this like next time around is like the one at the more convenient gym to me actually broke. And it, which seems like, okay, we'll just switch. Well, you try to like go to the most convenient one and you drive there and it's broken and then four or five days go by. And when you're using a six or eight day protocol and you, you, and you lose three or four days, it's actually kind of a material part of the whole thing. So I have to have this whole thing with like their manager and I'm like, just tell me if it's going to be fixed. Like, just to, like I called, I was like, Hey, is it on? They're like, yeah, it's on. I get in there. It's like a hundred degrees. I'm like, this is not gonna, this is not gonna, this is not gonna cut it. So anyway, uh, but my point with that, with, with the part of the lead in is, is this is the time of year where, where athletes who are training for hot weather events are starting to think about things like this. And I'm, and I'm glad this is the type of year because it used to be not until June or July when the heat actually turned on and a lot of the, you know, places where our athletes train, where people start to think about it. And the, and the thing that normally kind of tips their hat is, is the first really hot day or the first couple really hot days where they have a long run. So many people screw it up because they take yeah. their, they take the amount of fluids that they've been taking out for their like 40 or 50 degree days. And all of a sudden it's an 80 degree day. And they're like, Oh man, I didn't think about this too much when they come back all, all dehydrated all dehydrated and everything so what i kind of want to go over with you is it's a little bit of an extension based on an article that i wrote on the train right, right website a couple weeks ago that i'll link up in the show notes but it's really from a like a very practical and pragmatic point of view in terms of what are we doing with our athletes? I just mentioned kind of all the things that you can run into the sonic and break. It's inconvenient and things like that. And we mm -hmm. can draw all these protocols out on paper based on the literature that exists. But oftentimes when we start working with real athletes with real constraints and we have to balance their real time, which is everybody's mm -hmm. most limiting factor when we have to balance that time component, there are certain things that come up. And I always like to hear from coaches who do this a lot. And you have a lot of athletes, particularly in Western states that are starting to do this. What are some of those things that are, uh, uh, that, that are coming up? So to, to start out with, you have a whole, you know, gaggle or basket or whatever of, of, of athletes, which ones of them as you're looking through your training peaks list how do you filter, how initially do you filter through it and say, okay, I'm going to let, let's, let's explore this as a training intervention, some sort of heat adaptation intervention with Johnny, but not Susie and with Sally and not Jack, like how do you kind of go through it and prioritize who are good candidates for this and who you're just going to kind of stick with the normal training? So I've, right now I've got two sets of athletes, a small group, two, a pair of athletes that are training for the Keys 100, which mm -hmm. is sooner. Yep. That's a, down in Florida, and that's at the third weekend in May. One of them lives in Florida, and one of them lives in Virginia. So 
I'm working with both of them to organize a protocol, but the, the gentleman who lives in Florida is a little bit more already moving along down the road of being heat acclimated than the one who lives in Virginia. He yeah. actually lives in Lynchburg. So it hasn't even spring hasn't really even hit there. Um, so that's, that, that's a, 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 that's just a pair. Then I have eight athletes in Western States and they range from uh, two of two of them who live in the in Sacramento or the Bay Area, uh, and then Seattle, Idaho, Iowa. I talked to my athlete. I talked I talk to my athlete in Dubuque, Iowa, yesterday, and he's uh, you know he's still running in in tights and a hat and, uh, and so forth. New Jersey, Kentucky, uh, you know. So you think a lot about that, right? Yeah. And of course, over the over the last couple of months or so, we've been talking about oh, what's the weather like? Oh my gosh, I'm so sick of running in the ice and snow and so forth. So so I think about that in the context of who might be a good candidate and. Then and sort of begin to, like right about now, begin to have these discussions of, you know, the practical discussions. Do you have access to a sauna? Could you get access to a sauna? Uh, I, of course, I know my athletes pretty well in their work-life balance. Could you potentially, you know, have a day where in addition to doing a one hour endurance run or a 45 minute recovery run, you could also fit in 20 to 30 minutes in the sauna. So those practical discussions are really what's going on literally right now in real time. It, but it's, it's, so here's what I'm kind of getting at, right? It It's, I don't know if you could come up with a flow chart for it because it would have so many branches, but the general parameters are obviously you're doing a hot weather race. You don't have access to, and these are the, I'm filtering it down to the people that are candidates. You're doing a hot weather race. You don't have access to a natural environment that that's, that's very warm and it's accessible to you. Those are kind of like the three, like almost punch points to even make it a starting condition. Right. Right. The accessibility. Yeah. I mean, some people may not live within a range of a sauna. Yeah. Yeah. And that becomes one of those things where, where do you balance the training that you would potentially miss and the impact that that has versus what you could actually extract out of heat acclimation method? And I mean, I, I kind of I try to put percentages on this almost. Um, but I think the way to think about it is, for an entry-level athlete that's still going to gain a lot from training. They've been training for ultras for less than three years, maybe four years. They probably, and especially a low-volume athlete, like they're time-constrained anyway, right? You can only get 10, 12 hours a week out of them just because of their life or whatever. You can make the argument that the training is more important. For athletes that have a little bit more time, or maybe they're already at their volume cap, they can only handle 14 hours a week because of what, what, whatever they get injured or that's just, you've, you've figured out that's their theoretical volume cap or kind of whatever it is. Those are the ones that kind of make better candidates simply because they have the time. 
I think I think I have a great my great example are my two guys running the keys, uh, you know, it, it, third weekend in May. One of them's running his second hundred miler. The, the other's running his first hundred miler. They chose the keys hundred for their first hundred oh, miler. Brutal. Which, <laughs> for those of you not familiar with it, it's one of Bob Becker's races. It's a point to point out in Florida exposed. It's on sidewalks and roads and uh, it's, you know, it's kind of, it uses, you have your own crew, almost bad water style. Your crew goes along with you. So uh, these guys, uh, you know, are, are jumping right in and they're, they're nervous about the heat and, uh, and they are, they are frankly coop. They can, they can afford 12 to 14 hours uh, of training week. And so at this point, you know, as we go into the first, the first phase, cause I've got them uh, similar to your, uh, what you outlined for your Coca-Dona training personally, I've anchored their training in a, in a training camp, if you will, a training weekend with like an eight hour run followed by a five hour run. That'll be three to four weeks, uh, before the key event. So right now they're just starting about a, a 10 day period of trying to get this heat exposure every single day for 10 days. Then they get to that training camp. They run through that training camp. Hopefully it's successful. They do maintenance every other day, every third day from there. Although the fellow who lives in Florida could probably just do his daily runs at the lunch hour and be okay. And then do one more dose of a 10 day cycle leading right into the race. So I'm, I'm very interested because they are really, you know, they're, they're ends of one. They've one guy's done 100. It was tunnel Hill just in November. It was cool. Um, and I, I, I'm intrigued by both their willingness to jump right in and do it. And part of it's motivated by fear, by the way, they're just scared of, <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of this. And, and, and another part's motivated by, you know, I want to be as prepared as I can be for this, you know, this huge undertaking. So you mentioned fear. I'm going to ping off of that a little bit. Uh, so the part of the origin, at least for me professionally as a coach, for using what you just described as a, as a two-phase adaptation protocol where you're introducing one concentrated phase of the heat acclimation, whether it's a sauna or hot, hot water immersion bath, about s anywhere between four and six weeks out from the event, you do that for several days. We'll talk about kind of the nuance of that in a little bit. And then there is an in-between phase where you're just doing maintenance every second or every third day, you're kind of getting in the sauna. And then for the last several days leading up into the race is kind of, is kind of the last dose. Um, one reason that I started to adopt that model as opposed to what I would consider the traditional model, which would essentially just be the last phase, right? You just jump in the sauna for the last nine or nine or 10 days, which is kind of the de facto way to do it for, for, for many, many years is I was, a, I, I was afraid that I was going to screw it up. Like as a coach, meaning the intervention either was going to be too long or not long enough, or the sauna wasn't going to be hot enough. I was just mentioning some of the inconvenience of where the sauna breaks, right? If you're doing a seven day protocol and you miss out on three days, that's like half of it right there. So then, you know, is it kind of really worth it at that point? And, and, and so I just kind of like, honestly, I, I came up with it. I was like, okay, let's just try it. 
you know, a little bit further away from the race and just see how the athlete reacts. And then we use that as a little bit of a, as a, of a blueprint. It turns out a few years later, I started to know, notice a, a number of other coaches and practitioners in the space, most notably, uh, Inigo Majika, who I've had on this, on this podcast as well recommend the same thing, but kind of out of a different angle. Uh, first off, you do learn a little bit out of the first round that you can apply to the second round. Okay. Your sauna's broken or Hey, 25 <laughs> minutes is the right exposure time. You know, 30 minutes might be a little bit too long. 20 minutes is not enough. Like you can kind of dial in the dose, so to speak. Um, but the second thing is, is it tends to have a compounding effect where the second uh, round builds off of the first round, uh, off of the first one. There's not as much what, what I would, uh, what I would deem as like scientific evidence to, to, to back that up. It's just what, pro, what practitioners notice in the field. I wouldn't say that there's none, there's some to, uh, uh, to indicate that, but certainly like the mechanistics are there. We know that heat, uh, we know that heat uh, acclimation is an acute phenomenon it happen it happens very quickly it also deteriorates very rapidly on the order of you know 2 to 3% a day but it doesn't take much to maintain you can hit it every you know every third day or every second day and kind of main, maintain what 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 you've got and so it became this thing where you look at the cost benefit of it the cost is it's just more time out of pocket and that inconvenience factor is a big thing but the benefit is, is you can dial in the prescription more accurately and potentially get a little bit of a benefit. It, when you, when you weigh those things, my light just fell down. When you weigh those things, that's what that was. <laughs> when, uh, when you, when you weigh those things all out, it makes it a very attractive way to do it as opposed to just saving it all at the very end in, in one last shot, which I, every time I've done that, it's always nerve wracking. Like I always would bite my nails. Yeah. Like every time an athlete would get out of the sauna and be like, how was it? Cause it has to be so precise and they're doing it during the taper and all those different factors. It was just really, really, really nerve wracking. Well, I think there's interesting parallel too to other aspects of what we do as coaches to determine setting up a training a training race or a training camp where you'll you'll test out your nutrition or you'll test out your gear or so forth so that you have the confidence on and so then like let's say something goes wrong you know you 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 use a pack in a training race and you get really badly chafed you know so it's like okay well we got to get a different pack when we it's almost like a dress rehearsal so you do this you do this ten day sort of first phase uh, and you can you can sort of tweak some things when you get into the second phase. I mentioned the fear also. Another anecdotal story, one of my Western States athletes, actually one maybe one of the luckiest people in the world, she got selected in a raffle ticket. So she got into the race. She bought one raffle ticket and got wow. drawn. Uh, she lives in Kentucky. So a long time ago, she had scheduled to run the Zion 100K. So she traveled, and yeah. which was just this past weekend. She traveled all the way out from Kentucky to Zion 100K. And the first thing she said when she finishes, oh my God, it was hot. Yeah, yeah, and I was yeah. like, so how? she's like, well, it was like, you know, 80s or 90s right. and so forth. So it was kind of like, so for her, for confidence right out of the gate, she's like, Andy, I'm going tomorrow and getting a gym membership. And you yeah. know, so, so, you know, there's that, that, and then of course it is a little bit of the fear factor, but it's also, you know, it, th this athlete is now 
now engaged in checking that box, you know, finding the 30 to 45 extra minutes a day to get in the sauna to uh, to take care of the protocol and, and be where she needs to be when when Western States comes around. Yeah. And I see one, one of the it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the other things I like about this two phase protocol, it kind of parallels the training as well. Because personally, what I did for Cocodon, and this is what I do for a lot of athletes uh, that I work with as well, is that your biggest volume week usually follows the like right at the end of the first sauna block. And I like that for a couple of reasons is one, you're not compiling stress on stress on stress. So you do that sauna block and sometimes it's like, you know, during a, I would say like a medium hard week or 10 days or something like that. Certainly not anything where you're taking a big increase in your total training load or total, total training stress. Then you get out of the sauna, you remove the heat stress and you have the opportunity to add some other kind of stress and it's usually training. So you can train really hard, right? And you're not worried about, you know, the extra stress of the sauna. And I think that those counterbalance each other really well because anybody that's, any, anybody that's actually used either a sauna or a hot water immersion intervention realizes that it's extra stress. And I don't know how to quantify it. Like I've always think it's worth like somewhere between five and 10 K of running every time you get in there. I mean, I, that's the easiest parallel that I can, that I can kind of make. It's not, it's not the same, but when you want to talk about the total stress on the body, it's not zero and it's not a long run. It's somewhere in between there. And you have to, and you have to account for that, which is hilarious because I've always seen these people who like use their cars, right. As, the, yeah. as, as, <laughs> right. as like, you know, like a hot box and they're driving around. I'm like, if you're really doing it right, there's no way you would want to drive around in that condition. Like that's literally <laughs> reckless driving. Like literally a cop could pull you over and give you a ticket for reckless driving. <laughs> if, if you're really, if you're kind of really, really doing it right. But, but anyway, I, I, my point with that is, is the timing of that first of that kind of like two phase protocol, it tends to flow with the timing of what I want to do from a training perspective anyway. So it makes it all very conducive. I'm not changing the training, right. To, to, or, or at least I'm not training, changing the training that much to get the the heat work in. Well, and, and Coop, similar to the way you anchored your Cocodona training around a four-day training camp four to five weeks before the event, the Western states, like, uh, calendar almost plays itself into that. Most athletes running Western States, if they can get out to the Memorial Day training camp, they get out for it. And if not, if there's athletes that I'm working with that, that are running Western States and they can't make it to the camp, I typically create one for yeah. them, right? They run a three, they run a three and it's perfect. It's five, four to five weeks before the race. It's three days. You cover 70 something miles in three days. You know, it ends up being their longest week of training, right? So if you can put that first phase of uh, heat protocol in advance of that, yeah. then come out of that, uh, that three day training camp, have a little week of recovery, do, you know, 
know, do the maintenance of every other day or every third day sauna and then just play into the final 10 days, it actually works really well. And I would say to, to people doing bad water, to people doing Angeles Crest or Wasatch, some of the other sort of sneaky hot races uh, that are American hundred milers that are on the calendar, even Havelina late into the season, yeah. you know, can be sneaky hot. I think finding, looking at a calendar and finding a very, very much mirroring that kind of architecture uh, would really, you know, really, I think benefit, uh, benefit the athletes in lots of ways. hundred percent on point. I, I just want to make note, you call bad water sneaky hot. I don't think there's nothing. There's no, no, anything no, no, no. Sneaky. I'm sorry. I, 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 I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have clustered. I, I was mentioning that, that like Wasatch is definitely sneaky hot. You get into the, the middle of the day of Wasatch and it just gets exposed. A lot of people think, oh, September, it's not going to be that hot, but it can be bad. Well, because it's cold, like Catherine Pass is like usually really freaking like puffy jacket type of cold oh, for, yeah. Yeah. For, for most of the pack. And they don't realize that they've got to get to Catherine Pass first through like usually 90 degree weather. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I so I, needless to say, like we like that architecture, right? Six weeks out, you're doing your first kind of roughly six weeks out. You're doing your first intervention. It lasts several days. After the first intervention, you're going to do a huge training camp because you're removing the heat stress. You're going to do a maintenance intervention for the next, you know, three or four weeks or something like that. However, your training kind of works out. And then you're doing your last piece of it, the last several days uh, leading up into the race. Um, I, I want to talk about something that uh, that that often comes up when I when I talk about this. And that is we like to take a purist approach and use a traditional dry finish sauna but there's a lot of other methods out there and they range from a wet sauna to a hot water immersion bath to overdressed running to an infrared sauna and people kind of like want to know this like what are the substitutes like it does it have to does it have to be this or does it have to be that in your experience, where are you steering people towards when you have athletes that you filter them down to the candidate? Where are you steering them towards? I did. Well, notwithstanding, my first choice is the dry sauna. Um, un, unless they're training for an unusually hot and humid race. So, you know, Vermont from time to time can be really humid. Sometimes people are heading down to Costa Rica. Uh, and, and so a, a steam bath or a, 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 a wet sauna, if you will, would be a good second choice. I haven't had much ex- i have a current athlete who uh was went ahead and um purchased for his house uh, an infrared sauna i don't have enough experience with those i know that we've had some conversations at cts on the yeah. infrared sauna um i know that sally mccray who won badwater last year had a great deal of success with the infrared sauna but but i don't i don't personally have a ton of experience with that I am a staunch opponent of the overdressed running. Uh, I just, I feel as though it impacts the training 
benefit of running your everything from your form to your attitude towards running to your <laughs> ability to <laughs> i mean i just i'm just I, I know some people swear by it i mean i i've spent i spent a decade and a half you know going to the western states course and and watching people with three sweatshirts go through the canyons and you know I, it, it's it's it works for some people it doesn't work for me and i'm i'm not going to coach my athletes to do that i will say that you know, the w- running in regular clothes in the middle of the day, um, particularly if you can, if you can get in an environment where the heat's coming at you from all directions, you know, in other words, the Western States and others, Keys, uh, Wasatch, the hot races, bad water, you know, the heat in very hot places, the heat comes up from the ground as much as it comes down from the sky. Right. And so training a little bit of training actually in that setting, I think makes sense, not a five hour long run in that setting, but, you know, to just get a sense of what that experience is, what I, what I'm, what I'm often Coop trying to calibrate is let's say, let's take my Sacramento runner. You know, he, he might say to me, Hey Andy, I could run at one in the afternoon today. It's supposed to be 95 degrees, or I could go and spend 30, 30 minutes in the sauna. I might say, well, why don't you do one run at one in the afternoon today and not go in the sauna. And then the next day, you know, run at crack of dawn and, and run in the sauna. So, or go in the sauna. So I, I'm, my hierarchy is certainly the dry sauna, uh, wet sauna, hot immersion, hot water immersion, uh, infrared. If I, if I knew more about it, infrared, and then kind of bottom of the list is, uh, is the overdressing. That's a pretty good prioritization. Um, a lot of people ask about the infrared sauna. There's just no data on it. And I I mean, I've talked to all the experts on it and everybody's kind of miffed, honestly, because it's such a popular inexpensive thing to get. I mean, you can get one in your house for, you know, 1500 bucks and it wouldn't be that hard to install. Um, but so, so the, the combination of the ease of putting it in people's houses, as well as the cost and the fact that there's like not a lot of research on it is just, it's a little bit befuddling to be honest with you, uh, to be honest with you, the experts that I've spoken with don't feel that it gets people's core temperature high enough to elicit the adaptation. That's kind of the main knock on it. And I know some people that have done just some kind of N of one trials where they have access to uh, a core temperature pill that, that you can swallow, which is the traditional way that they would do it in a research setting. So you swallow a core temperature pill. It's me- it's literally measuring your core temperature from your internal organs. And then they've gone into an infrared sauna and they, they haven't found that it, that it elicits the right, you know, the right temperature response there. That's not robust enough to kind of rule it out. But that's generally the knock that you'll hear from the professionals out there is that the, the the intensity of the heat, although it feels very hot, the actual intensity of the heat in terms of its effect on your core temperature is not high enough. Now, 10 years from now, we might reverse that and say, yeah, you know, we studied it now. We studied it better and it is a, it is a reasonable alternative. Um, the, the, Instance that you or, or the method that you mentioned of the overdressing, I think, is also worth um, uh, discussing as well, because this is something that the Badwater crew, in at least in the past, has been particularly notorious about. Where you know they'll wheel their 
you know, treadmill into their dry into their laundry room and disconnect the dryer vent and stick the dryer vent in their face and turn it on full blast and then dress up in four or five different sweatsuits and run on their treadmill for a couple of hours and things like that. And, you know, I get it. Like, you know, you're trying to do whatever you can to combat the heat because it's, you know, just so notorious out there. But when you look at it on its face and just try to evaluate it through a neutral perspective, A, you're violating the rule of you're adding stress on stress, right? You're adding the heat stress to the running stress intentionally, which you can get away with in small doses. But when you're talking about chronic adaptations from endurance, you got to kind of like pick one or the other. But specific with bad water, what's always befuddled me is that actually doesn't simulate the environment. And there actually is really good research on this where they've studied what the environment is inside of all of those layers. Like the garment uh, manufacturers are always particularly concerned with this and want to know about it. And it's a very humid environment, as you can imagine, because you're literally trapping all of the heat and sweat in between your skin and the uh, and the garments on the outside, which is completely unlike Badwater, which is a very dry environment, and Western States, which you talked about earlier, they're running with their sweatsuits along it, kind of along the canyons. And so I look at that and it's, if it's all you had, it wouldn't, you know, it'd be, it's something versus nothing. If you did it in the right way, you know, you did it kind of very surgically and you didn't uh, allow it to interfere with your overall training load and things like that. But if you have other methods, go and use them and kind of what you've like, what you, one of the things that I think kind of went unspoken when you were going through the, the stuff with your athletes is, is for most everybody using a dry sauna is a pretty convenient option. Not everybody, but a, a large majority of people, they can get to a sauna within 20 or 30 minutes, you know, of their home at a gym, it's reasonable quality, and it's not that big of an ask. So you might as well use it. Well, and I think for, for some of these big ticket events, Western States is the classic example, right? Where many people spend years and years trying to get in. Everybody, everybody hears the stories of, oh, my gosh, I had no idea what I was in for with the heat. Right. And then the, the inevitable issues that that come from that. <laughs> so making making the sacri- if it is a sacrifice, right, to drive 15 minutes to the gym or to to get a three month membership of, you know, a month to month membership, because, of course, we're not we're not talking we're not telling them to you know, sign up for a gym and, you know, be in a gym for the rest of their lives. We're saying, look, in, in a couple yeah. of really small in a couple of really small doses you can you can accomplish this you know we're not we're not telling you to you know run on the elliptical inside the sauna you know (laughs) so so i I think that i think that if you if you're the other sacrifices that athletes are making and their families are making so that they can run in these big time races you know is is uh is I think uh, commensurate with going ahead and, and and finding a way to get access to that sauna. It's not that big of an ask. That's what I kind of come back to. It's like, yeah, yeah, even for the big ticket races, most people are like, yeah, I'll do anything. You tell me to like stand on my head and drink water. That's what I'm going to do. Like, because, because they realize it is the, as cliche as it sounds, it's kind of like a once in a lifetime type of deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for some of the other ones, um, uh, I, I kind of come back to the fact that if you're going to spend 12 or 14 hours a week training, A, I'm not going to max, I'm, I'm not going to ever push the maximum amount of training onto somebody that they can tolerate. You always leave a little bit off the top just to accommodate for things. 
you can you can carve out an extra hour a week or two hours a week at the very most, depending upon your commute time, to kind of make to 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 make this work. The other thing that you just mentioned that's always really interesting is the value proposition of doing this. All of the literature is based off of exercising in what I'll call an intense fashion. So like at threshold or marathon pace or something more intense than than an ultra marathon pace. And the advantages that you can have either in a hot or a mild environment at those intensities. So you're able to run faster, cycle harder and things like that in a hot environment and in a cool environment. If you do these heat, uh, uh, heat interventions, that's still true at the ultra marathon distance, although the intensity is, is a lot lower, but I think the value proposition actually extends further than this. And it's that the heat is not taking up more of your physiological resources and you can re-divert those physiological resources into mainly eating and drinking. I mean, some of it's going to be moving down mm-hmm. the trail a little bit more quickly, but a lot of it is, is like, listen, you're going to be able to tolerate more fluid. You're going to be able to tolerate more food and move down the trail and move down the trail quicker. If the heat is not zapping all of your physiological resources at the same time. And when you look at a race like Western States and quote unquote, the heat got to them. It's usually like a death by many, many, I'm not going to say a thousand because it's not quite that many, but a, de- but a death by several cuts. And it's like all of the above where the heat is kind of like the primary catalyst of what initially drags them down. Well, and you know, Coop, my, my, we've worked like together long enough. My favorite topic is mental training for right. ultra running. And let's, it's talking about value proposition. There's a mental, if you, if you've, if you've put in your time in the sauna, 175 degree sauna, and you know, and when everybody's up at Olympic Valley freaking out about the weather forecast, you're going to be like, you know what? I've done my, yes. I've done my homework. I've, 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 I've put in my heat training. I'm not going to let that take not only in the race it's going to drain my physiological energy i'm not going to let it drain my psychological or emotional energy everyone knows it's going to be hot you know everyone knows your quads are going to be sore from going down all those downhills right <laughs> so don't so, so don't waste the energy that it, you know the psychic energy of being like oh my god and if you've put in the work again not a huge amount 10 days six weeks out yeah. a smattering of two or th- every two or three days and then 10 days, you know, 12 or 13 days out. Not a big, as you said, not a big ask. You know, it's the kind of thing that an athlete could talk over with their spouse and say, look, I promise I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do all the dishes and, and you know, do the yard and do all this stuff when the race is over. I just need these couple extra hours a week, you know, for these, this six week period. I think in addition, the, 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 no doubt the physiological adaptation is the most important, but there's a mental piece to it too. It's like, Hey, I know it's going to be 110 degrees down there at El Dorado canyon and i'm gonna be fine dude that is that is so perceptive because one of the things that i always insist that my athletes do at Badwater, and this is what even when i'm on a crew uh at Badwater, which i've done many many times now is insist that the entire crew do some type of heat training protocol. And normally it's mm-hmm. the, the quick and dirty one, right? You're just kind of doing it all the last week, which ends up working out fine versus this elaborate, it's not elaborate, but more elaborate six week uh, protocol that we were talking about. And 
a big advantage in addition to the physical one because bad water there's no hiding right it's not like you, you can't get in your car and turn the air conditioner on right because the cars will overheat you're always exposed to the to the heat while you're out there in death valley but a big advantage of that is so that the runner is not worried about their crew because there's mm-hmm. so right. many horror stories of there, you know, there's a medical event or they pass out. I mean, I've been on crews that are total shit shows in, in, in large part due to their fitness and their lack of heat, uh, acclimation. And so this mental component that, that you mentioned where, yeah, I don't have to worry about having some sort of over elaborate, you know, heat mitigation plan because I've done all my homework. I a hundred percent believe that that's a big component to it. And it ties into this next topic that I wanted to to talk about because a lot of athletes who've never gone through this are kind of like curious about what to experience. So I was wondering if you could if you could start to describe what the athlete's feedback is as they're going through one of these phases, day one, day two, day three, day four, and what they kind of like normally experience because there is a, a fairly stereotypical run of show whenever athletes do this, that kind of emerges throughout each, you know, each individual. Well, most of all for the, for, for the cold weather people. So let's take my athlete in Dubuque, Iowa, right? The first, the first time he goes in there and barely makes it 15 minutes uh, at 160 degrees, he's like, he's thinking, how can I possibly get through 10 days of this? Yeah. You know? And so, so there's a little bit of a shocker when at first, and, and, and I'll, I'll talk about it. You look, if you're, if you're really overheating or your heart rate goes up and you need to get out of there in 10 minutes and cool down and go back in. I mean, there is a, there is a little bit of an art and a science to yeah, introducing yeah, yeah. these yeah. protocols, I think, uh, you know, and, and everyone's different. All saunas have a little different max temperature. You could end up in one that's like 190 degrees and you could end up in one that's 140 and be like, Oh, 140. That's not so bad. I mean, I, 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 I like, I tell my athletes, you know, if, you, if there's a thermometer on it, if you can be in the one, 160 to 180 range, you know, but, but sometimes that first, that first couple of bouts, you know, the feedback is I can't do this Yeah, yeah, yeah. or, you know, and then it might be, okay, well, let's, you know, you're going to keep doing it, but obviously we're going to have to play with the, the actual running training, especially as we're doing this first, uh, the first phase but invariably coop and the adaptation happens pretty fast yeah. and they're like i'm oh i'm 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 so bummed i freaked out after the first first 10 minutes here i am just four days later and i can handle half an hour in there or 25 minutes and so that's the other part of the feedback is you know you the coach has to be like yeah, you, you, you never, you never trust anybody who says, trust me, right? But the coach, <laughs> but the coach, <laughs> the coach wants to say, trust me, you'll feel better in three days, just tough it out, you know? Um, but, but invariably most of the time, uh, it works out. And then the feedback is, oh, I feel much better. Uh, you know, I ran, I, what I, what I like to do also, if, if, if it is in this situation where it's like, like on the Western States calendar right now, they might get to a random Tuesday in May and their local temperature is going to be 85 degrees. I might just, and they've done this week long, this 10 day already. And now they're in the, 
they're in the uh, maintenance phase. Hey, go out for a run. If it's going to be 85 degrees, go out for a run, you know, at one o'clock in the afternoon and see how you feel. And then the feedback is, Hey, you know what? You're right. I never, I never run in at one in the afternoon in 85 degrees in Iowa and it feels pretty good. And so then that, that, that feeds into, okay, well, this is obviously working. Um, in much the same way that, that a short bout of say VO two intervals over, you know, a three week period can, can have a, a, an aggressive adaptation, you know, provided they are doing them the right way, recovering in the right way and so forth. I think sometimes the trickier people, the feedback, uh, is more difficult with people who kind of already live in hot or warm weather climates. You take the, uh, my Bay area athlete, right? He, he, you know, it's cool in the morning, but it's, you know, if he runs at one in the afternoon or two in the afternoon, it's, it can be 75, 80 degrees. It's a little bit more challenging for those people in sort of temperate climates rather than people coming straight out of, you know, an Iowa winter. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's so funny that we keep coming back to this you know, acute adaptation, which means it happens quick and it happens what I to what I would describe for most people as a very robust to a very robust extent. It actually manifests itself physically while you're if you, if you're in a sauna. And this obviously doesn't work for a hot water immersion bath or or even a, a steam room. But if you're in a dry sauna, you start sweating earlier and more profusely. And the puddle in front of you is literally bitter, bigger. It's day to day. Maybe mm-hmm. first two days it's the same, but it's literally day to day. And to go back to your mental component, I think there is absolutely something by seeing that, by actually seeing, like, because you have a tangible reference point for some adaptive process, which in trail and ultra running is actually, we talk about this a lot as coaches. It's really hard to say, yeah, you're better than you were four weeks ago because of here's what I can pull out of the data. Cause the data is really fuzzy, right? Here it's not very fuzzy. Like the pool's, you know, this big when it first starts mm-hmm. out and then it's three times its size, you know, five, literally like five, five days later. And that feeds into that, into that psychological aspect that, you know what, I am better like that. I, you know, I can handle this. I'm making, I don't know what it is, but I'm making some sort of physical improvement by, or physical difference, at least that is going to be some sort of improvement. Like weeks down the line, we actually get in a hot weather environment. I don't think that that should be discounted when athletes go through that, when, especially, especially in a dry sauna where it's very, very, very apparent and you just feel yourself sweating more, your clothes are, are wetter, the, the the sweat puddle in front of you is enormously bigger. Like I said, sometimes 3X of what it was uh, when you very first started out. Those are, those are very real manifestations of the adaptations that you are seeking. If you go mm-hmm. back in the literature, you're going to sweat more, you're going to sweat earlier, and you're going to sweat less dilute, meaning there's less uh, electrolyte composition actually in, in, in the sweat itself. You literally see that after only a few days of being in the sauna, and that's a very, very powerful thing. Coop, let me, let me turn the tables a little bit and ask you a question because I, a lot of my athletes ask me this. What's your ideal sauna temperature? If you, if you, if you can control it and most people are going to a facility and they can't necessarily control it and your ideal uh, duration of session. So I like between 180 and 200 degrees for, 
anybody who's not very, very, very experienced. If you're doing a lot, you can get into like the 220s or whatever for almost everybody, 180 to 200, 20 to 30 minutes. And here's what I always tell people is you can err on the side of less because we were talking about acute adaptations. This is not training stimulus. And this is where I think coaches and athletes, they get it twisted because typically we think of volume as the overload, right? I'm doing Mm -hmm. 20 minutes of intervals or I'm doing a six hour long run or a 50 K long run, like that volume, it sets the parameters and typically the bigger, the better. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a very prototypical endurance proposition. It's not necessarily the case where the difference between 20 minutes in a sauna and 30 minutes in a sauna in terms of the physiological adaptation is 50% more, right? 10 extra minutes off of 20 minutes. It it doesn't work like that. It's more like a titration curve. And so I always tell athletes that if you have, if you don't have 180 degrees on, if you have 160, which is more common in gyms, cause they don't want to like, mm-hmm. you know, there's right. in the one, in the one of my sodas, I'll deviate for the story just for a second. In the one of my gym, there's a little red bar that starts at 180 degrees. And so the gym owners, they don't want to take it past that because they feel that they're going to be liable for something. If something terrible <laughs> goes awry, mine's set at 190. You know, I mean, I think, you know, and I like it. I, li- I, li- I like it like that. But most gyms will keep it between 180, 160 and 180 simply because of, you know, this little red thing that kind of exists in most on, on, on most thermostats that are in, uh, that, that are in saunas. But if you have a 160 degree sauna, it's fine. If you can only stay in it for 22 or 24 minutes, it's fine. You're going to get 90% of the way there. And that's totally cool. In fact, you could make the argument that that's the better setup because it's less stressful. Like you're getting 90% of the adaptation with, you know, far less of the, uh, uh, of the kind of, of the, of the overall stress. So ideally 180 ish to 200 for 25 to 30 minutes kind of would be more ideal, but there is nothing wrong. And you're going to get a whole lot of, ad, uh, adaptation out of things on the lower end of the scale. Now, if you want to talk about minimum effective dose, which I think is important in this, I think below 140, it's not worth it. And below 15 minutes, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. So if you yeah. ca- you kind of like have to exclude the edges of the bell curve, you know, when you're talking about these things, like the lower end of the bell curve, it's not hot enough to induce the adaptation. And the upper side of the bell curve, it's while you might be able to tolerate it, there's no additional adaptation. Like if you're in a 220 degree sauna for 30 minutes, like people can tolerate that. Like that's, that's very well documented you're going to lose a lot more sweat, but there's no additional adaptation. You're trying to get, you're trying to get the middle of it. And I think that there's a, you know, a fairly tight and defined range there. And as long as you're there, I think it's totally fine. And my one more follow-up, we know, we know that the, that, that there's a deterioration, you know, two, 3% a day. I, I, I tend to say, you know, when they're doing the final buildup during the final dose during the uh, taper, if the race is a Saturday race, the last day in the sauna would be Wednesday. It just seems to me that Thursday and Friday would be days to just, you might lose a couple percent, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want them. I don't want athletes to have any additional stress in those last two days. Do you, you kind of agree with that? Yeah. I think, I think two days out is totally fine. Some people will prefer one or three, but you kind of split the middle and two days is totally fine. We always have to be careful when we mention these percentages because people will interpret them as an X percent deterioration in everything. 
And that's right. not necessarily <laughs> the case, right. right? So when we're saying this, like, okay, it's a two to 3% uh, per day deterioration. When you aggregate all of the individual components of how you improve through a heat acclimation protocol, which includes, you know, plasma volume expansion and how, uh, how much earlier you sweat and how much you sweat per hour. Like when you kind of aggregate all of those things, it's roughly a two to 3% per day deterioration. Now that doesn't mean that your tolerance to the heat and your performance in the heat deteriorates by two to 3%. It's much, 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 much less than that. So when athletes are thinking about this, you hit the nail on the, on the head, Andy, you have to think about what's going to be the bigger driver and certainly rest and relaxation and just having mm -hmm. the confidence that you've done all of that. That's the, going to be a far bigger driver than trying to like maintain that last little bit on the flip side of that kind of going off of the minimum effective dose theme. I, I think it gets problematic and this happens with athlete. I have this situation with an athlete right now. He's going to be traveling internationally to, uh, 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 to, to like one of those uh, four desert races where he's not going to have access to a sauna for like five or six days. I do, I do think that, it, that the value proposition gets tricky in that, it, in that mm -hmm. situation mm -hmm. where you're out for that period of time and you're going to see that amount of deterioration kind of happen without any additional stimulus. And if you happen to be in that logistical uh, situation. Normally it's, normally it's when you're traveling or something like that. You can take a top off, you know, type of, uh, uh, approach where you research hotels and gyms kind of along where you're traveling. And maybe it's not every day for those five to seven days or whatever it is. But if you get in two additional exposures or three additional exposures that could, or when you get to the, you know, you get to the host venue and you're running in 90 degree weather that kind of like takes care of the maintenance part of it. I think you can kind of play that game as well. So I, I encourage athletes when they're kind of working this out to be mindful of, their travel and how long they're going to be out of it. And if they're going to be out for, I usually set like a five day kind of cutoff. It, I think it's worth your while to find some way to hack it together. So, something together during those last five days that, that, that balances a little bit of maintenance there. I wanted to, I wanted to dovetail too, uh, on your, your, your previous comment about, uh, working with Badwater crews. I insist that, you know, I, I meet with, when I have Western States athlete, I, I, I meet with their, I asked to meet with their crews up in Olympic Valley, you know, go to, go to the, go to Starbucks or something. And I do the exact same. I mean, obviously they're not going to heat train, but I do the exact same thing of the, you know, you're going to be standing in Michigan bluff in the sun, you know, for eight hours, so brutal. there's, there's no water, it's pavement, you know, you're, you're going to have to hike down to ride some, you know, rickety old yellow school bus to get to, right. So you, it, it's a little bit of mental training, but the, your point it's not directly related to our topic, but the, the sort of, you don't want the runner to worry about their crew. Right. I mean, I, I've seen these crews dragging huge coolers, oh you know, down, down the road to Michigan bluff. And it's like, by the time they get there, they're, they, they need to go to the medical tent. <laughs> yeah. Michigan bluff is a mash unit. It's yeah, it most is. years and like 25% of the occupants of the mash unit are the, are, are, are the ill-prepared crews. So anybody listening out there that's got crew, for bad water western states or any of these hot weather races like do yourself a favor 
instruct your crew a little bit because it's it's really meaningful to you at the end of the day that you don't have to worry about it and agonize over it during the race and you know and and it's always obviously the 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 biggest thing is it's safer um so we've talked about crews we've talked about kind of like other caveats with real world like application and interferences that can kind of uh come into uh come into account what other things, since you've done this a lot with your athletes, what other things have kind of like come up during the course of this that isn't, that aren't going to fit the prototypical, you know, box that we try to put things in and how have you kind of worked around those and formulated best practices to ensure that the athlete is still trying to get the adaptations that they want, despite whatever logistical hurdle or constraint or whatever that they, that they might have. Well, but, but by far the biggest is when some some life event comes up. They have to, a, a, a last minute business trip, and they're not going to be able to get to a sauna, or they're going to they're going to try, but it might fail, or, or or you know a family member gets sick, or those kinds of. Uh, and and frankly, I think because of those unexpected life events, it's a, it's all the more reason to have, as you referred to, you know, way back in the beginning, to have the two phases yeah. because it almost gives you the the first phase gives you a little insurance you know against <laughs> against so let's say you're in the last 10 days and you're called away for an emergency business trip you know eight days out and seven days out from the race and you're not able to so athletes might freak out about that and then i might say kind of like similar to your four desert athlete well look if you can get away at lunch hour during the business trip and it's 90 degrees go for your run then it's going to be better even just go for a walk in the park you know and and try and walk in the places where there's no shade i mean it's it's weird but i i, I tend not to say drive around with your heat on i mean i i i I, I, I will admit that I was guilty of that back in the day before <laughs> before all the science came. By the way, there's a whole podcast and stories about how we used to do it in 2000, 2001, 2002, because it was, I mean, Dr. Lind, Dr. Bob Lind, the famous Western States doctor who studied this a lot. I mean, he had the 990 theory, right? Nine days, 90 minutes, 90 degrees. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not the worst thing in the yeah, world, uh, but of course we've evolved. We've evolved from there but uh that was kind of what what we all lived with in those early or for me early years who knows what they did in the 80s and 90s um but but i would say life life events are the are the hurdles um sometimes i've had two athletes just really have an adverse reaction to the sauna kind of like getting rashes and mm, I mean, this is getting yeah, specific, yeah. but, but they skin irritation and things like that, which kind of gets in their head, you know, 10 days out from the race and um, a big race and, and they come out of a, they get a rash or, or, or something like that. So health, there are potential, and I, I think it's a small amount, but there are potential health concerns. And, and so that's where I, I similar to you would say, you know, a little bit, bit is better than none. And so if you realize that, you know, 25 minutes, you're going to break out and get a rash and, you know, everyone's going to worry about you, but you can be in there for 10, you know, for 15, 20 minutes, not get the rash, or maybe you need to do a sauna one day and a run in the heat the next, you try to find a way to get something. But I'd say life events and sort of weird, unpredicted responses to being in that environment 
Um, and often both those cases, they then freaked out and said, oh my gosh, if I can't sit in the sauna for 20 minutes before yeah. breaking out in a rash, yeah. what's going to happen to me in the race, right? And, uh, so, <laughs> Well, I'll take, I mean, you mentioned all the kind of the oddball life events that happen. I'll take the mix and match approach when those, when that's the case. And what I mean by that is a sauna one day, hot weather run the next day, sauna, you know, two days later, another hot, you know, like that, that kind of thing. I'll take that because I know that at the end of the day, they'll be similar enough. You're that you're going to get it, that you're going to get it close. It might not be ideal. Very few things in life are ideal and perfect. It might not be ideal and perfect, but you're going to, I think it's worth it, particularly if you're managing the rest of the training load correctly, even to do those imperfect things. And that's another thing that athletes kind of like get in their heads is like, well, if I can't do this elaborate thing that we laid out, right? Six weeks out, you do this and then you do maintenance. And then 10 days out, you do this other thing. If they can't do that, then like, ah, it's screw it. You know, cause I can't, I can only do half of that. I, I think that this is one of those interventions that if you can get it close, if you can get it like 70 or 80% of the way there, it, it's worth it for a hot, for a hot weather event. Because the, as we mentioned at the, at the onset, the adaptations are robust. They're acute. You can get them fairly quickly and it doesn't have to be picture perfect to make an impact. And I kind of want to leave with that. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but I think it's, I think it's fair since you work with a lot of Western States runners and so it may or may, you probably don't have to do a lot of convincing with those athletes, but with some other athletes, sometimes it does. What in your estimation at the end of the day is the, the performance impact on it. Like if you could quantify, you don't do a heat protocol for Western States and then you do one, what is that Delta for most people? Cause people are going to size that up in their head. They're like, oh, God, I gotta go do this. And we're like, what is it really worth at the end of the day? And in, in, in it's most extreme, it could be worth it, depending on how fast you are just sort of physiologically gifted or not. It could be the difference between finishing and not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the most extreme case, but, but let's say you're a, you're an athlete and we know there's a lot of these there. You're, you're an athlete that's qualified for Western States with say a, a 28 hour hundred miler at Rocky raccoon or, um, or you have Alina and you're, you're basically running, you know, you're, you're a potential golden hour finisher at Western States, right? Which means you're going to mm -hmm. be going, you're going to have two hot days. You know, you're, you're, you're at least going to, you're going to have the one and you're going to hit the canyons at the hottest point in the day. And then you're going to, you're going to get out you know, the next morning. You know, when you're at the lowest point on the course and it heats up again, you're going to be heating up again. So at, at its most raw level, the difference between heat training and not could be the difference between finishing and not finishing. You know, with a lot of the athletes that, that you you and I know we work with, you know, they, 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 they get into the race, they sign up for coaching and they, you ask them what their goals are and they say silver buckle. 24 hours. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and that can be the big, that, that can be a big difference. You know, you, one of the things that, that the heat stress does to many Western States athletes is they get to these heat of the day aid stations, Michigan bluff, we've talked about already forest Hill, and they just collapse in a chair and sit there for 15 minutes. And that sometimes they kind of have to, they have to put ice on their head. They have to get their core temperature down. They have, but the clock's ticking in those moments, yeah, you know, yeah. and if instead of that, if you can douse yourself with water, 
water, keep moving down the trail. You know, uh, I've, I, I do think doing the heat, doing the heat training can be the difference between, between success and uh, failure, both in the, in the, the golden hour runners and the 24 hour runs. And then the last would be, I have a, a few, you know, sub potential sub 20 hour runners, you know, potential top, top finishers, top 10 finishers. And at that level, I think doing the heat training is perhaps most critical just because there's such a small margin for error. Um, And there tends to be a higher dropout rate uh, for those front end runners because they are pushing the envelope. Uh, And again, if you can remove that variable as a top end runner, you know, in my, in my, my experience running Western States, I found in the hotter years, the, the uh, attrition rate was much more extreme. You know, I I can think of, um, I can think of years where I arrived at Michigan bluff and was in 20th place and finished seventh. And I can think of years, uh, that's a really hot year. And I can think of years I arrived in 20th place and finished 14th, a not very (laughs) hot year. And it's gotta be, there's gotta be a, a correlation, right? Between the level of preparation for the heat and how those hot years impact people. Um, so that's, that's been my experience. And, and I think, you know, for, 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 for a coach, uh, again, because it's not a huge ask, uh, and it's this once in a lifetime thing. I think that it's, um, I think it's, I think it's completely worth it. Yeah. I kind of pit like performance is always multifactorial, right? That's and especially in ultra marathon when we're learning this more and more as the research comes out is we can't really tie certain traditional physiological measurements to outcome, whether it's VO2 max or lactate threshold or running economy or leg, leg stiffness or power or whatever, it's all very spurious, you know? And, and so it makes our jobs as, as coaches really hard because we can push and pull different physiological buttons, you know, and what would be the, the pulling lever buttons and levers um, to, to elicit adaptation. But at the end of the day, if you don't know, how meaningful those adaptations are. It's, it's, it's hard to rank order them, right? And that's something that we constantly go through as a coach. And I think that this is one of them. When you look at their literature, it's, you know, let's ballpark it at 5%, right? Whether you're doing a time trial, uh, time trial or VO2 max test or something like that from an acclimated individual in the heat to an unacclimated individual in the heat. I, I think in an ultra marathon context, it's bigger than that. I think it's roughly 10%. And that's, that's my, and that's totally, it's not a guess, but it's an educated extrapolation from the existing research and how those physiological manifestations actually play out in an ultra marathon context. I think in a hot weather race, it's ballpark 10%, meaning it's not, I don't think it's 2%. I don't think it's that, that small. And I don't think it's 20%. I don't think it's that big split the difference. It's about 10 for most individuals. And then when you work the math out on that, to your point, that turns a 29, that turns a 31 hour finisher into a 29 hour finisher or 27, 27 and a half hour finisher. I'm trying to do my math in my head real quick, but it, but it can very easily turn somebody that is on the borderline of one of those cutoffs, whether it's the race cutoff or silver buckle cutoff or whatever, from going over the line to under the line, over the line, under the line, back, back and forth. Like that percentage can make a pretty a, 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 a pretty huge difference once you sum some total at all. I, I don't know if that's if that is the exact right answer, but I think that that's a reasonable one when athletes are thinking about an intervention to do. Meaning if you get everything right, 
roughly 10% is reasonable. So if you get 90% of the way there, you get 9%. I mean, that's, that's a good, like if you told somebody, Mm -hmm. Hey, listen, do this and you're going to get 9% better. Almost everybody's going to take that, especially if it's a low cost, if it's a low cost intervention. That's why I think that these conversations are important because at the end of the day, we can do a hundred different interventions, not just related to heat stress, but related to everything. I mean, coaching is an intervention, altitude's an intervention, heat's an intervention, you can have nutritional interventions and things like that. And you always have to determine the cost benefit. And th- and that's big. Like if mm-hmm. I, like, mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't want to discount it. Like I think 10% in a hot weather race that's a big one, but I think that that's a reasonable expectation of which you don't have a benchmark against unless you had a before and after, you know, but. Well, I also, Coop, I also think, I mean, if I, I'd love to do this, a study of hot weather races and to get a correlation of people who drop out because of stomach problems and people and, and whether or not they did a heat training protocol before, you know, we, we know that the, 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 the stomach problems result in the bodies, you know, the body is working so hard to cool itself that it doesn't have the resources to digest the calories, to get the nutrition and so forth. And then the nausea inevitably follows. And next thing you know, you know, the trains off the tracks. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's a way to mitigate against those inevitable stomach problems. You know, everybody battles a sour stomach at some point in a hot, weather race, how they manage it, how well they're prepared for it, or whether it to them is a hot weather race, right? You know, Mm. if they've adapted, if they've adapted to the heat, 95 degrees might not be a hot weather race and they can process, uh, process nutrition in the way that a normal person might in 70 degrees. So Mm. I think there's a lot of layers and I I think you're right. I think that 10% is probably about right. I could even squeeze it up to 12 or 13, yeah, you know, when it's, if you, yeah, if you're, because I, I'm going to tell my athletes it's 20. So <laughs> that's a lot. I tell you what, if you get, if you get, I mean, 10% training intervention is pretty magic. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's not, I don't use that word very lightly. I mean, that's a big training intervention. Normally, if we can get a few percent here or there, but I think in a hot weather race, I, I realistically think that's the difference. And yes, you're going to find athletes that do very well at those races that didn't do any of those things to which I will always say they were more than 10% better than the rest of the field to start out with. I mean, that's right. just like, <laughs> right. so they would have won by more <laughs> like, or outperformed right. <laughs> by even more if they had done it. I mean, that's always, that's kind of always the case. I hope maybe somebody, maybe we can convince somebody over at Western States to include that in the runner survey because they already have coaching there, which I'm, I, mm-hmm. the first time I saw that, I was shocked. I was like, that's kind of cool. Like I, I use that as a coach and yeah, we should be beating the median and the average and the 24 hour cutoffs and things like that. If we're collectively as coaches and we're not the only people in the room that are doing this, doing our jobs, we should be to one side of the bell curve. Um, uh, if they're, if they're taking that stat, maybe that can be an additional one that we can, uh, include. Cause I do think that there could be some, some insight there, despite all of the issues with, you know, the biases that presents in terms of, are you getting people that are just more prepared in general or whatever, but interesting to, to, to look, to look at nonetheless. All right, Andy. We batted it around enough, man. That was that was all fun. right, Coop. This was great. Yeah, this I, is great. I hope I hope that athletes kind of come away with some 
some kind of like really practical, like coal face view of, of doing things like this, because now's the time this podcast is going to come out a week from now, which is what's the date today, April 15th. So that's April 22nd. This is going to come out. It's the right time for it. It's the right time to think about it. Not, you know, on the week before Western States or the week before Wasatch or the week before Badwater. Like you need to start thinking about these things now. I'm going to have links in the show notes to the article that I referenced, as well as a really fantastic review piece from last week's re-release, Julian Perriard, that are kind of easy reads. And even if you just wanted to skip to the more pertinent parts of the summary and read the practical pieces of it, um, I think that it would be worth uh, uh, athlete's time. So links to all that will be in the show notes. So go and check those out. Andy, do you have any last minute pieces of well, advice I've for anybody? Say, I, I, I hope all the listeners know that our, our host here is going to have his own hot weather adventure uh, in early May at the Cocodona 250. So hopefully you can come back on uh, on a Coopcast and talk about how you are how your two phase uh, tactics, if you got a 10% bump out of it. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, no pressure. In your, in your 250 mile journey across the Arizona desert. Yeah. And if I totally melt, I'm going to have to come up with a completely different strategy, right? That's the thing about putting yourself out there. You know, you do these things right. and they turn out great and you're the hero. They don't turn out great and you're the goat. So <laughs> we'll, well see how it goes. You'll have a great race down there. It'll be fun to follow along. I'm looking forward to it. I do hope it's hot because to your psychological point, just I'm in the maintenance phase right now. I'm I'm starting to feel not to sound too cocky, but I'm starting to feel pretty bulletproof against the heat. Like mm-hmm. I went down yeah. there, I ran a couple days in super hot weather. It was kind of, I was no worse for wear. So we'll see. Proof's yeah. always in the pudding, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Coop. Yeah, man. Thanks. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Thanks to Coach AJW for coming on the podcast today. I hope everybody got some insightful information on how to implement this for yourself. As I mentioned from the onset, I do think that these types of interventions have a very high rate of return for the investment involved is one of the best things you can do for yourself. It's something that we've learned a tremendous amount about throughout the course of my, certainly my coaching career, but even over the course of the past five to seven years in terms of how to actually do these correctly, where they have the least negative impact of training and the most positive impact on the outcome. I appreciate the heck out of each and every one of the listeners out there. If you like this podcast, remember there are no sponsors, there are no endorsers, and there never will be on this podcast. Feel free to share it with your friends and your training partners. It means a tremendous amount to me when I hear stories of people who listen to this podcast and they take something from it out into the real world. You can help out a lot by just sharing it with the people that you love and the people that are training for these events. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.